Top shot. Diving play by Ozzy. Long throw. You wouldn't believe it. Tommy with a drive. Deep center field. Away back. Goal. And Scott Rowland hits one into deep left field. Back at the wall. A leap. And a catch. Andy Chavez takes a home run and turns it into a double play. Into deep left center from Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back to Proact Baseball. Travis Laver here with Scott Brady. That was uh, that theme song that you heard in the first episode and now again here in the second uh, is actually the Labatt's Blue Jays Baseball on TSN theme song from 1991 to 1994. So if you are a Blue Jays fan of a certain age, that probably hit you right right where it needed to. Right in the field. It, it, got, it got me pumped. For... <laughs> <laughs> like it's like, Chris, let's watch some fucking baseball in June. Let's go. Whenever I think of, like, baseball theme song, that is the one I think of. Like, that is the one. That's the one Dan Shulman and Buck Martinez coming mm-hmm. in over that shit. Yeah. I uh, don't know it. what I specifically think of. Maybe maybe Fox Sports? I don't know. Cleveland didn't have, like, a specific regional one like that, I guess. But Yeah. Yeah, whereas Canada, we had that, we had that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one on ESPN, Sunday Night Baseball, right, yeah. is obviously ESPN Baseball definitely. Tonight one. Yeah. Uh, that one we'd definitely get sued if we tried to use it. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with that. Uh, you know, that TSN and uh, and CTV is maybe a little more um, maybe a little more lax. Maybe they're not gonna sue us if they give us a cease and desist letter. We'll uh, we'll get a different one. But until then, we're using it because it's awesome. Works for me. Cool. So last time we did the Baltimore Orioles and Toronto Blue Jays from uh, June something something 1994 24th I think. I think it was pretty good for a first episode, yeah. for a pilot, you know? Good game, good uh, commentary. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, you've all listened to it now, I'm sure. Every single person <laughs> has listened to that to that episode. If you haven't, you can go back and listen to it. You can go back and watch the game. We left all the links, as we will always do, in the show notes. And uh, we may compile them somewhere else as well. Maybe we'll release them on Twitter. We haven't really started using Twitter or any of that stuff yet. we still got to, like, figure out how we're going to get this into people's ears. Uh, so, so we're not just talking to ourselves. It was a good time. Been thinking a lot about it and excited about the games we're doing coming up, including today's, which, uh, I will turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Scott Brady, and he can introduce the game and, uh, do some highlights. So we are going to be reviewing the game played at Comiskey Park on May 18th, 1999 between the Cleveland Proto-Guardians and the Chicago White Sox. Starting for Cleveland was right-hander Dwight Gooden. I'm sure many remember him from his days with the Mets. Uh, this was well past that, and as we'll get into, he is uh, not, not, not exactly the same guy he was uh, in New York, either with the Mets or the Yankees. And starting for the Chicago White Sox is right-hander James Baldwin. Cleveland starting nine in center field, batting first, was uh, Kenny Lofton, my favorite player growing up, or one of my favorite players growing up, I should say. Uh, Batting second in one of the few seasons that he actually hit well enough to be batting second, uh, shortstop Omar Vizquel. Uh, Batting third, second baseman, and returning 
from our last review, Hall of Famer Roberto Alomar, batting cleanup and playing right field, Manny Ramirez, batting fifth and playing first base, my other favorite player from childhood, Jim Tomey, also a Hall of Famer, batting sixth and playing left field, David Justice, batting seventh at third base, Travis Fryman, uh, the designated hitter, batting eighth, Richie Sexton, and batting ninth, catcher Enar Diaz. On the White Sox side, we have second baseman Ray Durham leading off, batting second, shortstop Mike Caruso, batting third, first baseman and Hall of Famer, and maybe male steroid enhancer promoter Frank Thomas, question mark, batting cleanup and playing in right field Maglio Ordonez, batting fifth and uh, the designated hitter Paul Canerco, batting sixth, the third baseman who, even though I've watched this game, I'm only just now realizing his name and hearing of him, Greg Norton, should say a lot. Batting seventh, left fielder Carlos Lee. Batting eighth, center fielder and future broadcaster Chris Singleton. And batting ninth and catching Mark Johnson. The Clevelands are managed by Mark Hargrove and the White Sox managed by Jerry Manuel. At this point in the year, Cleveland was starting to already run away with the moribund AL Central with a 27-10 and record, and the White Sox were trailing them by eight games at 18-17. and uh, Again, this game was played in May of 1999. Uh, at this point in time, the world was uh, most threatened by uh, Y2K and Jar Jar Binks. Uh, depending on your opinion of either of those. And the state of affairs in baseball at the time, in 1998, we had seen Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire have this tremendous home run race to break the long-held record by uh, Yankee outfielder Roger Maris. Of course, they would both go on to break it and then break it again in 1999, totally by natural means, as we're all very sure. And big theme of this season, Cleveland was absolutely destroying everyone offensively at the time they had the best record in baseball Sox were hopeful to contend but you know they didn't have anywhere near the kind of balance or depth that cleveland had and one other note uh this was being broadcast by fox sports chicago calling the game was the ever infamous ken hawk harrelson and tom Hestiarek, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct or not, who I am not familiar with. Uh, Pasarek. Pasarek, I think. Uh, and then from there, unless Travis has anything else to note, I will continue with the highlight. No, you All right. do, do you. So, in the top of the first, uh, Kenny Lofton led off the inning with a walk and then promptly stole second. Vaskell grounded into a fielder's choice, uh, getting Lofton over to third. Robbie Alomar followed up with an RBI double to left center, uh, which almost got out, if I remember right. I think it bounced off either the top or middle of the wall, putting up Cleveland for an early lead that they would end up never relinquishing. Uh, there was then a wild pitch, which sent Alomar to third. Manny Ramirez then also drew a walk. Jim Tomey would then line out the right field, which Alomar would score on, making it 2-0 Cleveland. David Justice would then double to left center, scoring Manny Ramirez, making it 3-0 Cleveland. And Travis Fryman would then ground out, ending the inning. Going into the bottom of the first, it was three up, three down for Chicago. Then, in the top of the second, where most of the remaining action of the game would take place, 
Uh, Richie Sexton would lead off the inning with another walk. Enar Diaz would fly out to center field. Kenny Lofton would also draw a walk. Omar Vizquel would strike out on a check swing. Roberto Alomar would also walk, uh, loading the bases, and that would be five walks to uh, poor James Baldwin at this point. And then, of course, Manny Ramirez, who would lead the AL in RBIs that season and break the Cleveland RBI record. I think he had 165 that year, which I don't think anyone's even come remotely close to that since then. Maybe Ryan Howard had a season where he crept up into the 150s. I think. Maybe. We'll have to double-check that on the back end. But that would make it 7-0 Cleveland. Jim Tomey would then strike out swinging, as he was wont to do, ending the inning there. Bottom of the second, another 3-up, three 3-down three for Chicago. Pitching change then for the top of the third. David Lundquist would come in to relieve James Baldwin. Justice would hit another double to lead off the inning. Richie Sexton would fly out, bringing Justice to third. Or no, I'm sorry, that was Travis Fryman. Richie Sexton would then hit a sack fly, uh, which would score David Justice, making it 8-0. And then the inning would end after that. Not a whole lot going on for Chicago in the third. One out single for Chris Singleton, which would be the first hit of the game for the White Sox off of Gooden. He would then steal second. Ray Durham would draw a walk, but there would be nothing after that. No further damage. Uh, top of the fourth, uh, Kenny Lofton would actually lead off the inning with a home run. Uh, as his career progressed, Lofton would kind of uh, put up some middling power numbers in the low you know, teens, maybe, which was more than he had at the beginning of the, his career, but still not really a power guy. That would make it 9-0 Cleveland. Um, and from there, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because there wasn't a whole lot else going on from that point. Uh, Lofton home run. Keith Folk would come in to the sixth and uh, would allow a single to Omar, walk to Robbie Alomar. Manny and Tommy would then both fly out. David Justice would hit a single, and Travis Fryman would also hit a single, making it 10-0. The game would stay 10-0 going into the, let's see here. Or was it 11-0? No, it was 11-0 this time. I'm sorry. <laughs> you say uh, you lose track after a while, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it, as you can see, there's not, not a whole lot going on here. Uh, it would stay 11-0 until the 8th when Jim Tomey would single, David Justice would walk, and then Travis Fryman would hit a double in the gap to center field, scoring both of them and making it 13-0, and that would be the score for the remainder of the game. Um, looking at the pitching lines... Just do a quick look at this. On Cleveland side, Gooden would go seven innings, only giving up one hit, one walk, but only striking out two. And that probably was his best start of the year, or one of his best starts of the year, as we can go into. He was absolutely horrendous this season for Cleveland. Uh, Ricardo Rincon of Moneyball fame would come in to relieve in the eighth. And then Paul Assenmacher would close out the game in the ninth, uh, only giving up one hit. Assenmacher. <laughs> I think I actually have his autograph, if I remember it, right. Your autograph says ass that. on it. It, it, does, it does say ass, and then Enmacher, as was his name. Um, but yeah, this was a uh, tough loss for Chicago. Um, you know, Cleveland absolutely manhandled them. 
It's actually kind of funny. If you look at the score of both games at Sandwich this one, Cleveland would score 13 runs the day before and the day after. But Chicago would score nine runs in the first game and seven runs in the third game. So this was the only one they were shut out. And actually, my trivia question that I was going to ask you, Travis, oh, as I know you also have we're one doing the trivia prepared questions. for me. Let's do it. Uh, well, just because it does kind of go with, you know, the whole uh, stream of consciousness yeah, here. This, this, uh, by talking the way, about, let's, uh, let's just introduce this real quick. This is a new new yeah. segment where we're going to ask each other new a bit. trivia question based on some tangential thing with the game. Could be directly the game. Could also be somebody uh, about some player or the teams or whatever. Uh, and we're going to keep track of this shit because we're competitive people. So let's yeah. do this shit. So um, I was actually going to ask you a question about James Baldwin. Um, you may be able to answer this. I don't know if you've looked at his B-Ref page recently or not. I have it up in front of me currently. So in 1999, and this is just to drive home a point about how stupid the run environment was at this time, he had an ERA of 510. What was the ERA plus that that specific earned run average uh, equaled out to, I guess? Okay, so I did I did look at his Fangraphs page, actually. And I did, okay. I did to, get an, to get an idea of what his, his very high-looking ERA is actually meant in the context of Major League Baseball in the late 90s. I did look at his ERA minuses. So you're asking for ERA minus or ERA plus? You're right. Okay. I didn't look at 99s though. I just kind of did a whole like, how was he actually doing in general? But it was something like something like 94, 93. <laughs> like what? You're you're very close. It was 97. 97. Okay. So so here's here's the really funny part. So his FIP was even worse than his ERA that year. Uh, 5.44. The following year in 2000, which was an even more stupid run environment. His ERA was 4.65. FIP was exactly the same, 5.44. ERA plus was 108. Yeah. Just absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I think I had a, um, I had a few things about James Baldwin. Just because I remember him being like this guy, not unlike Todd Stottlemyre in our last, uh, in our last one, who mm -hmm. kind of came up and was like this hard throwing guy with a good curveball, like really, really a lot of raw potential. And he pitched for for Chicago for quite a long time, uh, from I think ninety five through till like two thousand one. Yeah, two thousand one was quite a while, and he uh, he was just never really put it together. He had a couple decent seasons, but really never put it together. And then I think he was at a baseball by like thirty three or something after bouncing around. But yeah, he only had three seasons with ERAs. ERA minus is under 100, so 100 being average, and in this case it's a minus, so uh, better than average in 96, 2000, and his final year in 2005 when he was a reliever. Mm -hmm. uh, but the only three times he was under or like above average in terms of his ERA, but the ERAs in, the, in those years were bonkers. Yeah, if you were throwing in the mm -hmm. mid fours, you were having a pretty good season. Um, yeah, it. so he looks worse when you look just look at his page and go, wow, those are some high ERAs. He was better than those suggest but yeah just never really put it together and i remember like i remember at one point wanting the blue jays to get him in the late 90s because he was this because the white Sox were talking about trading him and it was always like yeah the jays could get him and mel queen could get him and make him into an ace because that's what mel queen used to do or at least that was the reputation i don't know that there's actually truth to that <laughs> he's the guy who fixed roy halliday i don't know ah uh, okay <laughs> yeah he's the guy that, that turned roy halliday into 
the best pitcher of a generation, arguably. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's James Baldwin. Played for a lot of teams too: White Sox, Dodgers, Mariners, Twins, Mets, Orioles, Rangers. Almost all of those in the last like two years of his career, three years of his career. So mm-hmm. yeah, interesting, interesting guy. Um, James Baldwin is. Well, you want to do the trivia question for me then too? Uh, yeah, bring it on. Okay. Let's hear it. Okay, so we mentioned like Cleveland had an absolutely insane bonkers lineup. This is like yeah. <laughs> like sort of prototypical late 90s, like just one through nine or at least one through eight in this case, like really good hitters. When you have Travis mm-hmm. Fryman and Richie Saxon at the bottom of your lineup, you're doing pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. So they were maybe this surprises people who are younger or who weren't around back then. I don't know who the fuck younger is listening to this, but Cleveland was a really high payroll team at this point. They were uh, fourth in baseball in 99 at $73.3 million. Back when Dick Jacobs was running the show. Back when Dick Jacobs was running the show. So here's my question for you. Fourth in baseball, mm-hmm. $73.3 million. Who were the three teams ahead of them that season? Uh, I feel like the Yankees is a free answer. Yeah. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. The Yankees okay. were number one at 88.2. I want to... Yeah. Anecdotally, I'd want to say Boston, but this was before, like, John Henry was in control of the team and really, like, just pouring money hand over fist into the team. So maybe not the Red Sox. Well, hold on. You can't just be throwing out half guesses here. you got to commit. Let's do this. Uh, yeah, you know what? Let's say Red Sox. Eh. Wrong. Here, nope. I, okay. let, me, let me look it up again to make sure. I want to see where they actually... But so Boston was sixth at 71. Okay, so right track. Um, yeah. Let me think here. Would have been a big money team in 1999. Obviously the Yankees. The Mets, maybe? Mets were seventh, just behind the Red Sox. Hmm, okay. Uh, Brave? The Braves were number three. The Braves, okay. were, the Braves were number three at uh, at um, eighty or seventy four point nine. They were just okay, ahead that, of Cleveland. Okay, that makes sense. So I got one and three. Oh. Yeah, who was number two? The number was eighty one point six million. Was it the Dodgers? It was not. The Dodgers were eighth. So you had sixth, seventh, and eighth. <laughs> so I'm guessing everyone around it. Uh, yeah, there's one you, you're missing second second and fifth because Cleveland was fourth. Right. I'm trying to think, like, who would have made sense? Maybe not a big market, but would have been spending a lot at that time. I don't know. I'm drawing a, bran- a blank here. Can I have a hint? Uh, well, let me see if this team was actually good. I just, as soon as you said that, I was like, really? Was this team good? This team was good. They won 95 okay. games that year. Okay. 95 games in 1999. Actually, that 95 games, I think it was uh, only only New York and Cleveland were higher than them in wins that year in the American League, at least. So this was a playoff team, obviously. Okay, playoff. AL was. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give oh, you. Oh, oh, was it the was it the Rangers? It was the Rangers 81 uh, okay. 81.6 million? So the Yankees first, the Rangers second, the Braves third. Just a little bit about uh, how owners suck. So, mm-hmm. I mean, some of those numbers might sound kind of high for 99. I don't mm-hmm. know. They, they surprised me with how high they were. And the reason they surprised me with how high they were is, A, we weren't really talking about payrolls as much back then as we did in the 2000s. Like, really, once Manny Ramirez and A-Rod and 
Like all those yeah. sort of big con- That's when we started like talking more about yes. payrolls. Yep, that was exactly when it was. Yeah, and so this was right before that. And I think this is another interesting time of baseball history because it's right before a lot of the initial TV deals, right before payrolls and player salaries really like actually took a step upward. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm just I, this is a this is another I don't want to say it's a trivia question, but there were six teams, six teams in Major League Baseball in 2022 that had payrolls lower than the Yankees $88.2 million in 1999. Six teams. And I should note, your Clevelands were one of them. They spent yes, less, less money in real dollars in 2022 than they did in 1999. So as I said, Cleveland's, yeah, Cleveland's that, payroll was... That's not even a little bit surprising. I, that surprised me because Cleveland's payroll was $73.3 million. I knew they were high. I knew they spent money in the late 90s. Seventy-three point three money, three million dollars. They spent mm-hmm. sixty-six point five million last year, and like yeah. that's in real dollars. Adjusted for inflation, yep. that's pathetic. <laughs> that yep. is pathetic. No, it's and, and that was the the whole thing. And don't get me wrong, I had an absolute blast with last year's team. Like they were they were a hoot, and I will never forget that you know inaugural Guardians team. You know, both because it was the inaugural team of the rebrand. And then also because they were good, because they were so young, and they had so many fun players. But part of the story with that team, and I think this actually colored some of the fan graphs and other site analysis of them, whether they would be willing to admit it or not. I think a lot of people wanted them to fail because they were so blatantly not spending I did. last year. I did. Which, which is which is understandable. Like <laughs> I, I, all I the AL Central teams, none of them really spent any money. So yeah, it's like now it's, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard it's, to really fault them. I mean, they are the worst defenders, obviously, of that of that group of five. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I was well, I was kind of rooting against them. Like, I mean, by the time they got to the playoffs, I basically because of you, I started to kind of root for them. But like, yeah, no, like before that, I was like, nah, fuck this team that's refusing to spend money and getting rewarded. Yeah. Well, and it's and it really comes down to at the end of the day, it's it's when you look back at what they were doing in the nineties, it's it's Dick Jacobs versus Paul Dolan. Oh yeah, frankly, yeah, of course. Um, you know the I the the whole reason I'm not on Twitter anymore is because I said some uh, uh, we'll say very not nice things about Paul Dolan and leave it at that. Um, but it's it's been very frustrating as a fan to watch because uh, he just has not committed to the team at all. Uh, since buying because the last year that dick jacobs owned the team i think was it was either this year in 99 or it was 2000 um and outside of like uh like 2001 they gave a pillow deal to juan gonzalez um who had been coming off of a down year in detroit um you know they they paid they paid travis hafner a decent extension uh in like 2006 or 2007 after he had had that monster three-year stretch um, you know, they gave a okay-ish but still below market deal to Edwin uh, in 2016, coming off the World Series. And it was like Swisher and, and Bourne too, right? They, yeah, they yeah, the they, they overpaid for for Swisher and for Bourne. And then here recently, they gave you know Ramirez his extension. But other than that, like they just they have not paid for anyone or anything. And it's been yeah. so frustrating because it, it's only gotten worse with time, honestly. Well, one of the biggest things too, like, I, th- I don't remember exactly what year you would definitely be able to tell me. 
that Manny Ramirez signed with Boston, it was one of those things where like Cleveland was still pretty good, and if they had if they had decided they were going to be the team to extend their homegrown hometown hero, how different mm-hmm. would baseball look right now if like Manny Ramirez spent the remainder of his prime on Cleveland instead of going to Boston and helping them, you know, become ultimately a, a World Series champion twice with him on the roster, um, and and breaking that curse there. I mean, he was obviously a big part of those teams, maybe the biggest part of those teams ultimately. And, you know, what if, what if he'd stayed in Cleveland? What if, the, what if the team even spent just, like, a little bit, even middle market, like middle of the of the pack sort of spending, and, you know, kept a guy like Ramirez, who was clearly, you know, otherworldly, one of the greatest right-handed hitters of his generation. Like, what would that look like? And Tome is another one, obviously, but, but yep, Ramirez, they Ramirez specifically because they could have mm-hmm. done it. It was right at that time where they were still spending yep. money. They were still, like, mm-hmm. up near the top of the league in payroll. They could have conceivably done it you know well and you also wonder too because cleveland was an early adopter of sabermetrics and of moneyball like after the a's really pioneered a lot of that thinking it was cleveland the cardinals were kind of early with that um red Sox. yeah definitely red Sox. like those three were the big early adopters um because really if you look at what cleveland and if you look at what st louis has done as a comparison Really, outside of a couple lucky, I shouldn't say lucky bounces, because there's so much that goes into winning a title, but if you flip a couple years a little bit, Cleveland probably looks a lot more like St. Louis from a success standpoint if you add a couple more titles in there here or there, Mm -hmm. Um, just because they they really have been, from a front office standpoint, run tremendously well. Oh, yeah. Uh, No no shade toward the people doing player dev and, and, and acquisitions and... Well, and you, you know, wonder too. I always, I and other Cleveland fans often wonder what Antonetti could do with a real budget. Well, I think you're, like, I think you're seeing it yeah. kind of right now, right? If you look at Toronto, which we we didn't really talk about this last time, I think this is a good opportunity to do it. Uh, yeah, obviously, the, there's the, a lot of shared DNA. Yeah, the, the Blue Jays are run by Mark Shapiro, who is the former the former uh, mm-hmm. Cleveland GM, and and uh, and Ross Atkins, who was was his right hand man in Cleveland as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, we used to deridingly, because a lot of fans really hated them when they first came in, because they supplanted Alex Anthopoulos, who was a hero for bringing the 2015 team to the playoffs and for making some real ninja-like trades in his time as a Blue, as the Blue Jays GM. And, of course, has gone on to great success with Atlanta. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we deridingly called it Cleveland North for a while, and we were all worried, oh, see, Rodgers is bringing in they're bringing in these guys who are going to like not spend any money and yeah, they'll be good at player dev and they're smart, but like they're not going to spend any money. And of course they are spending money. The blue Jays are actually over the luxury tax Mm -hmm. this year and they've they've built this massive player development complex in Dunedin, Florida. That's like state of the art and hasn't even begun paying off yet. (laughs) Like in terms of what it's brought to the Bajors. That's pretty cool. And like, I think you are exactly seeing what Antonetti could do if he had money and it's in Toronto. Yeah. No, that would make sense. Yeah. But, yeah, so pay, yeah, payrolls, I mean they, payrolls were a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the no, way, the other, the other... And it's, sorry, go ahead. No, you're okay. It's it's always, you know, it's going to be a never-ending conversation with Cleveland as long as... I mean, really, as long as a team is around, but specifically as long as Dolan is around, just because he's shown such an unwillingness to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the one good thing he's done is he's been very adamant about keeping the team in Cleveland, which, like... Right. Y- y- you know, I, I don't really care for like i know uh, i think it's 
is it Joe Sheehan who said this, where he's talked about, like, you know, there's certain cities that just shouldn't have baseball teams. He's brought up Cleveland. He's brought up Cincinnati. He's brought up, like, Pittsburgh. Yeah, he's Like, these, up... you know, quote-unquote dying cities. <laughs> yeah. um, See, which, that is that... interesting to me because racism. <laughs> let me yes. let me explain. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Sheehan, Sheehan is kind of a weird she cat. Sheehan is a weird dude, cat. Because, I really, I like, he's a smart dude. I like what... He's very intelligent, very top-notch baseball analysis, yeah. excellent writer, but he, he has some weird opinions on minor leaguers, and he has some weird opinions on, you know, like, the state of the sport itself, and teams, and it's... It, like... So, look, he has some weird opinions on labor. Just very, very weird guy for a guy who's as smart as he he's is. a conservative yes. guy. I think. I think we can say that he's at least a, a liberal, conservative liberal kind of yeah. mindset. Liberal not in to get too political about it. But, yeah. But he. So, I, I just I want to go on a little rant about Midwestern American cities, if I could, for a second, because I spent a lot of time sure. in Windsor, Ontario, which is again, as I said last time, right across the border from Detroit. I, yes. when I lived in Windsor for those 18 years, I would routinely, when I had the money and time, would rent a car and I would drive into the Midwestern United States. And I saw a lot of the major cities there, such as Chicago and St. Louis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, many times love Pittsburgh. Absolutely love that town. Such a cool city. Pittsburgh um, is very fun. Very underrated in my opinion. And those Rust Belt cities, the Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, to a lesser extent, St. Louis and Chicago. Um, these are cities that have been hollowed out by racist housing policies and mm-hmm. uh, and the encouragement of white flight to suburbs. Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati are small cities when you just, and Detroit for that matter, small cities when you look at the core of the city and who actually lives in the city. They're small mm-hmm. because the population, all of the white folks, fucked off. It is all it is all the poor black folks and working class black folks that continue to live there. They all went out to their Troy, Michigans, and I don't know what the, the equivalents of those other cities are, but they went out and lived there. So where they, I grew up, Medina, it's the, yeah, it's like a suburb of like Akron, basically. Like my parents actually were living in Cleveland when I was born, and then moved to Medina in the suburbs to get out of the city. Right, and that was that was the that's what happened to those cities, and it was racist. Mm-hmm. It was racist, first and foremost, right? And so this idea, and, and so therefore, there's a couple of things going on there. Therefore, now now we're seeing a, a complete reversal of that. And this is maybe where, where Sheehan just doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. People are moving back into those city centers and are at least working there. They've become sort of gentrification hubs, if you know, where, where white people feel sure. safe to move back sure. in. And, and like you have cool art and restaurants and cool things and all these sort of signifiers of gentrification happening. But importantly... The metropolitan areas of those cities are still very, very large. So this idea yeah. that they're not big cities because people don't live in the city is bullshit. Because when you look at the greater Cleveland area, greater Pittsburgh area, greater Cincinnati area, greater Detroit area, they're huge. They may not be, mm-hmm. you know, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, but they are very big, like very, very big areas. So this idea that there isn't enough population to support it not only is it a little bit racist because what you're saying is that team that that people should lose their long-standing and traditional sports franchises because white people got scared of black people and left like that's a problem maybe we should be like looking at that as the, as the real issue here and sure. also that like there is still population in the area now obviously teams like Atlanta pick up and move their fucking stadiums to the suburbs and mm-hmm. like 
is that what is that what Joe Sheehan would like the Clevelands to do? Is move their team to Akron, you know, like or wherever else is the not is even the Akron, suburb? like like Strongsville or Brunswick or that. That right. would be the equivalent, basically, of what Atlanta did. And honestly, or what Detroit that... did with with the Pistons, yeah. right? When they moved them to Auburn mm-hmm. Hills, same thing. Yep. So like, I just I whenever I hear that kind of shit about these like smaller mid American cities, I always immediately it's like I'm not saying that Joe Sheehan's racist. I'm not saying that he is like aware of this. I think he's just probably not aware of this, or if he is, he doesn't care. Um, maybe that is racist. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just I think it just doesn't really it doesn't hold water. No, Cle- Cleveland can support test. a fucking baseball team without any problem. In terms of mm-hmm. its population, yep. I, and honestly, I, you've you've seen business and people return to the downtown area because of the success of both the Guardians and the Cab. Yeah, honestly, lesser extent the Browns. Like, in terms of corporate success, the Browns have a lot of it, even if they haven't. Eh, that, it to that's on a the whole field. Nother, <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation. If you want to do like a sad Browns podcast with me sometime, yeah, no, I don't, we'll be I don't here care all day. About football, but. But uh, no, but Detroit no, no, no. Detroit's an interesting example there too because again they built Comerica Park and now Caesars Arena, um, mm-hmm. and, and Ford Field all right on the same block basically they're all in the same yep it's like this like a sports complex, and like I don't know how Ford Field and actually I do know how Caesars Arena was built it was built largely with public public money but Comerica was actually built mostly by private money, unlike most stadiums, mind you the Illiches own both the Red Wings and the Tigers, so, right. you know, one time they did it right, the next time they didn't. But Mike Illich yep. was more of the, I mean, he was a piece of shit in terms of his labor and, and uh, uh, other relations, but he, he had, as far as owners of ma- of major sports franchises go, Mike Illich was one of the better ones, and he built yep. he built Comerica Agreed. with mostly private funds. It's just, it's it's all, like, for Sheehan to just, to just sort of nonchalantly say, listen, population is changing and people are leaving these cities because of industrial rust-out. It's like, yeah, no, it's not as much the industrial rust-out as it is the racism. <laughs> like, mm. that's the bigger factor there. And it's a little shocking to me that someone like Sheehan, who's an intelligent guy, doesn't yeah, know a no, little Yeah, no, genuinely better. smart dude, just some weird baseball opinions. Uh, anyway, do you yeah. want to go get into more of the notes from the game? Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into some more specific notes from this game. Uh, quick note from last episode. Uh, Andres Galarraga was the NL batting title winner in 1993 with a whopping 370 yeah. as his uh, end-of-year batting average. Yeah, we had that We had that wrong last time. Um, that was where we were like, oh, who won the batting title of the National League? And we kept like, Tony Gwynn, was it Barry Bonds? It was, I remember, I sort of offhandedly said, it's probably some Rocky. It was. It was some Rocky. It was a Rocky. <laughs> it was yep, Andres It Galarraga, was some Rocky. <laughs> who any other year on any other team probably doesn't win the batting title, but there he was in 1993 uh-huh. doing it. No yep. disrespect to the big cat, by the way. No disrespect mm-hmm. to Andres Galarraga. But yeah, that that's just uh, some cleanup. From last time, we were sort of like stabbing at it without looking it up. Uh, it was Andres Galarraga that did it. Yeah. So let's start talking a little bit about uh, Cleveland specifically this season. So they would finish the year 97 and 65 uh, with a pie fag of 93 and 69. They would score over a thousand runs at the yeah. They finished the year with a thousand nine runs. Uh, one of, I think, maybe five or six teams that have done that um off the top of my head because I've, I've looked at this list before it's like two or three dead ball era teams from like the 19th century 
I think like a Red Sox team from the 40s or 50s that had uh, Ed Williams and uh, uh, what was Joe DiMaggio's brother's name that was Dom, on the Red Dom, Sox? Dom DiMaggio. Dom DiMaggio. Yeah. Yep. I think they were both on that team. And then this Cleveland team. Yeah. Like it was absolutely bananas. Yeah. They, um, they, were, they, also, they were nuts. Yeah. Uh, average, let's see here, 6.23 runs a game, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, but when you watch this series, it, it makes sense. As I already mentioned, they scored 13 runs every game of this series against Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Texas, who was also stupid that year, was second in the league at 5.83. The gap that there. Seemed, that gap is Yeah, crazy. that's a pretty sizable gap. Yeah. Another thing, too, like just, just to bring up on that, because I, I didn't exactly do a deep dive into it, but the 97 wins, first of all, I was like shocked at how low that was, and I think I've been... Uh, I've been conditioned by 2022 baseball where there's just 112 win teams every year. Yeah. That was still the second best record in the American League, one win behind the Yankees, so it's not like they were off by mm-hmm. that much. But the Pythagorean 93 surprised me because this team, actually, I won't say they couldn't pitch, but they were only 10th in the American League in runs allowed. And and that's that's like, I think, similar to the Blue Jays teams that of the early 90s. That, that was their problem. It wasn't that they couldn't hit. They would out-hit you, but mm-hmm. the pitching was not so great. Can I go off into a tangent about Cleveland pitching during this era in the 90s? Okay. In 1995, which was their real... I mean, 94 was kind of when they returned to relevance, and 95 was like the true breakout. That was the the strike-shortened season where they went 144, which is a crazy, crazy, crazy pace. Yeah, that's nice. Um, And across the full season, they might have gotten to 116 before the Mariners did, potentially. But... That year, I'm pretty sure they led the AL in pitching. We go back to 95. They were first in the American League in ERA that year with uh, 3.83. The rotation being uh, headed by the three-headed monster, I guess, of uh, 41-year-old Dennis Martinez, who was still very good and very effective that year. Had a 152 ERA plus. A very good season. Cleveland fan favorite Charlie Nagy. Who finished with a 4.55 ERA, but won 16 games because he got good run support. And then you had uh, post Dodgers Oral Hershiser, who was also very good that year. Uh, 121 ERA plus, uh, 3.87 ERA. Um, but yeah, those three were kind of the the like backbone of that rotation. They also got some starts from Mark Clark, Chad OJ. Uh, former Expo Ken Hill, who I think See, they might have gotten at the deadline that year. Can I say, though, with that um, 95 team, just for a second? Yeah. That doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a team that was 20% better than league average in ERA. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if you had told me, like, oh, yeah, the three-headed monster of Dennis Martinez, Oral Hershiser, and Charles Nagy, like, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> none of those three guys are in the Hall of Fame, particularly, and, and, I mean, other than... Hershiser's probably the closest Hershiser of probably the three, sh- but even him. Be, but... Yeah, but like you know, none of them were like, and Hershiser at that point in his career was not 1988 Oral Hershiser either. Importantly, so so here's what they made up for. Uh, while the rotation and the rotation was decent, like it was good enough that year, um, but where they made up for it, and I think what really shaved off that ERA. So Jose Meza had his truly immaculate closer season that year. He had 46 saves, and I think at one point had like a. 20 or 30 game save streak without a blown save uh, had an ERA of 1.13 which equated to a 418 ERA plus that year 8.2 strikeout per 9 which for that era is pretty high Julian Tavares who was really young at that point 
He had a 193 ERA plus with a 244. Eric Plunk, 267 ERA with a 176 ERA plus. Uh, Jim Poole, 375, 125 ERA plus. And then uh, Paul Assenmacher again here uh, with an ERA of 2.82, <laughs> which was a 167 ERA plus. So like those five plus the halfway decent uh, rotation they had is how they finished with the best ERA in the AL. I think a lot of it came more from the top of the rotation and then that entire bullpen just being really good. Yeah, Jose Mesa's um, strikeout numbers that year, 23.2% K rate, which by mm-hmm. today's standards is like comfortably average. But back then, yeah, middling. back then was bonkers. Very good. You're striking yeah. out almost a quarter of batters in 1995. You were doing something. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. That is insane. Plus... His walk rate was, I think, a career best that year, six point eight percent, which is, again, like, very good. So like the well, he he finished second in Cy Young voting. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about Cy Young voting, but I mean, two point one <laughs> Fangraphs WAR as a reliever yeah. that is legitimately mm-hmm. great. And he was yeah, good. Three, he had 3. that B ref. He had that. Uh, he had an even better year by Fangraphs WAR in nineteen ninety three, but. That was because he was a starter, which is interesting, yes. and that's not a thing that I knew about Jose Mesa until right now. <laughs> he was a failed starter. Yep. Yeah, I mean, all relievers are to a certain point, I'm sure. I didn't realize he actually sure. was a starter for five seasons mm-hmm. in the major leagues. Yep. That completely left my mind. <laughs> he had a very strange career path. Like uh, Eckersley liked, although Eckersley was a better starter and pitched as a starter for longer, but still. Yeah, well, yeah, Jose Mesa finished his career with a four ERA. He was He wasn't... Dennis Eckersley. No, no. But in that he actually had quite a long career as a started starter. Started and yeah. then, yeah, and then pitched. No, you're right. Yeah. Or started and then relieved. But those um, those first three years as a as a reliever, especially like the first four years really, but 90, 94 through 97 was just a very good time to be Jose Mesa, at least in the regular season. Mm-hmm. We can talk about 97 another time, Scott. <laughs> All I'll say is I'm I'm very thankful that I I was around in '97. I had cognizant thoughts in '97. <laughs> I have memories of 1997. That World Series, thankfully, is not one of them. I think I have more memory of my dad and his friends like hey, listen, losing their minds. As a neutral observer, one of the best World Series I've ever seen in my life. '97 World it, Series was legitimately it was a back an and forth World incredible. Series. Yeah, and went to seven games like objectively. Yes, but also no, and also, <laughs> also fuck the Marlins. Also no, and fuck you. <laughs> yeah. This has nothing to do with anything we're talking about here today, but uh, Craig Council scoring the winning run in both 97 and 2001, doing the same move. Crazy. Uh, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> also wearing sleeveless jerseys with pinstripes. Yeah. Well, which was, for to different be fair, teams. like half the league back then, but like... That is true. That was the look back then. <laughs> yeah. And can I say, I never have cared for that look. I know no, some I people have it's... really strong feelings about the sleeveless jersey look. I've always thought it's looked very stupid. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. I just don't care thing. for it. I, I, the pinstripes with it especially, but um, yeah, because Cleveland did that yeah. too, right? Without the pinstripes, but they had the sleeveless They weirdness. did sleeveless... In like the early to mid aughts, I remember when I was a kid, and I and I remember this because it was Jim Tomey's last season with Cleveland specifically in two thousand two that they started using those, and I'm like, ew, these look dumb. Mm-hmm. But, the Rockies still use them to this day. <laughs> they don't look like it. Well, I mean, the, the Rockies colors, but... aren't a real baseball <laughs> franchise, so that's true. It's only fair that they have not real baseball uniforms. Sorry, Rockies fans. Yeah. So anyway, continue about your uh, 
pitching analysis of the 90s yes Cleveland yes teams. yes so and i'll and i'll try and not go on too long about this but i have a point anyway so in 1995, they had the best staff in the AL. They run into the Braves in the, you know, World Series, obviously, and get shut down largely by their very good Hall of Fame caliber pitching. To a lesser extent, some uh, questionable strike zones, which again I won't dwell on that now. Well, are you saying? Um, are you saying Tom Glavin benefited from an inordinately wide strike zone? How dare you? Mm, <laughs> Controversial. Anyway, so, so after. After 95, uh, John Hart, the GM of uh, Cleveland at the time, was very hellbent on trying to basically rep- not replicate the Atlanta rotation because, you know, you need to basically draft three Hall of Famers to do that. Or, well, actually, no. They drafted one, they traded for they one, and they bought the third one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he was trying to replicate, you know, a, a rotation of that caliber. So in 1996, they signed Jack McDowell, who was bad. They should have signed one of Al Leiter or Kevin Brown, and they did not. Who then, of course, in 1997, shut down Cleveland in that World Series. But, uh, you know... First of all, the, how dare the, you? How dare you besmirch the good name of Black Jack McDowell? Eh. <laughs> we'll watch one of his well, starts. In, we'll watch one of his starts from uh, his early 90s years where he was actually... Good. Oh, he was he was much yeah. better earlier his, yeah, in his yeah. career. In, By the time he when got he, to when Cleveland, he came to he Cleveland, though, not, he was horrible. Yeah, he was not good. Yeah, no. And had so and hadn't they been kept... good for a while, if memory serves. No, like he had not. I, yeah, I don't know why they spent money on him versus you know Kevin Brown would have been an insanely good pickup. Yeah, uh, that would have been that would have been the move to do. Well, Jack McDowell frankly. was also like the Yankees' big free agent pickup a couple of years before because they got him from yeah. Chicago and a free agent. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the early or mid-90s sort of big uh, free agent pitcher moves by the Yankees, and then he just was never right. never the same pitcher. So after after 1996, uh, Cleveland parted ways with uh, Dennis Martinez. They still had Charles Nagy and Earl Hershiser. Um McDowell was gone after 96. So then going into 97, they had two kids come up whose names were Jarrett Wright <laughs> and Bartolo Colon. One of those things had a good career. (laughs) Yes. As I'm sure most people listening to this know who Bartolo Colon is, uh, he was much, much skinnier in 1997. He was younger than I am now, which is insane to even think about. Significantly younger, actually. He was 24 in 1997. Get ready for that to continue blowing your mind for the next (laughs) 10 to 15 years, my friend. Welcome to your (laughs) 30s. Yeah. People are are young I hate it. Yeah. No, I hate it. Um, Charlie Nagy was my age in 1997. That's weird to say out loud. I really don't like that. Anyway, you know how many, uh, listen, continuing. Just tangent real quick. Do you know how many players <laughs> currently in Major League Baseball are older than me? Because I can count yeah, them I on know. one hand, Scott. Let's just continue without talking about that. For uh, continue yeah, on. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so Bartolo Colon and Jarrett Wright were two you know, hot Cleveland prospects, basically, that came up around the same time. Uh, Jarrett Wright, in particular, was very good down the stretch for Cleveland that year, and actually got the nod in Game Seven of the World Series. Oh yes, um, and I had been good previously in the playoffs. Uh, yeah, controversially so. Yeah. Um, so after they lose in '97, John Hart decides he he needs an ace. He needs a guy. So he looks into getting Randy Johnson. He looks into getting Kurt Schilling, and looks into getting Pedro Martinez. Of those three, the closest that he came to acquiring was Pedro Martinez, who supposedly, and we'll never know for sure, supposedly the asking price was those two guys, 
Jarrett Wright and Bartolo Colon. That would have been a fantastic trade for Cleveland. It absolutely even with Bartolo Colon having a pretty good career with Cleveland, that that would have been an absolute just stone cold steal. (laughs) We all know what Pedro would go on to do. Uh, Both in in ninety seven, he won the NL Cy Young and was fantastic for the Expos. And then what he would later go on to do, which we might touch on in more detail in ninety nine and two thousand. We're gonna watch one of his stats. We're gonna find a good one too. We're not just gonna find a Pedro star because there's one that I watched. Uh, on this channel and it's not it's not that good he's not that good at it but but like yeah from like 98 to 02 could are is arguably like the greatest pitching stretch of all time with Pedro. i i specifically i think his 99 and 2000 are literally the two best pitching seasons we've ever seen yeah when you account for what the run environment was how much better he was than literally everyone else in the league at that time and then also accounting for like the volume he did it yeah. across, like what he did in those two seasons is absolutely insane. So, so um, importantly, you just mentioned three names: Randy, Randy Johnson, yes. Kurt Schilling, Pedro Martinez, arguably yeah. the three best pitchers of the next five years after 1998. Yeah. So, Scott, none of those three played for the Clevelands. So, who did play for no. the Clevelands? Who did? Yeah. Who did John no, Hart they, get? Yeah, no. So he ultimately ended up keeping both Wright and Cologne. Cologne would go on to have a pretty solid career for Cleveland. Yeah, he's pretty um, good. And eventually would get flipped for Grady Sizemore, Brandon Phillips, and uh, Cliff Lee. One of the better John Hart moves of all yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and, and the calculus for that gets weird because of how Cologne's career ended up developing and the fact that all three of those guys kind of had either weak back half of their career or careers that got shortened by injury in Sizemore and uh, Lee's cases. But uh, no, it, it was a very good, like... Still an excellent you know, trade for ice, a guy who was, who was about trade. to sign with yeah. the Angels as a free agent after that right. season. Or the, but did he have, like, no. a, I think he had a year and a half, right, of, of control yeah. for the Expos? So who he did end up getting uh, in 98, or at some point between 97 and 98, uh, he would trade Sean Casey to the Reds, for Dave Burba, um, not yeah, notably was, not Pedro Martinez. <laughs> yeah, Burba. not Pedro Martinez. Dave Burba was not very good, and it's really weird because you had this whole like generation of Cleveland hitting prospects that all got traded for pitching, and none of them amounted to much of anything. Uh, Richie Sexton, who was in this game, would later get traded in two thousand to for, Milwaukee. Right? I can't even. Rem- yeah, he went to Milwaukee. Was that was that part of the Bob Wickman trade? I don't know. We have the internet. Maybe. I'm going to look it up. You yeah. keep talking. Uh, Richie Section was traded. Uh, Russell Brannion was another one who was traded. Uh, all were traded in attempts to get pitching, and none of them amounted to much of anything. But ultimately, yeah, uh, Cleveland did not get Pedro Martinez, who then would go on to shut down Cleveland in the playoffs in 1999 when he was having this immaculate season. So it's, <laughs> it's become a bit of Cleveland lore to reminisce on what could have been if John Hart had actually gotten Pedro Martinez or really Schilling or Johnson, any of those three. Personally would have preferred one of the first two because Kurt Schilling's a huge piece of shit. Um, But all three excellent pitchers, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you you Um, wouldn't have known that back then. No, God (laughs) no. It would have been great for you. Um, So July 28th, 2000, Cleveland trades. Sexton to the Brewers with a player to be named later who ended up being Marco Scudero, interestingly enough, remember some guys, uh, yes. along with Kane Davis, Paul Rigdon, 
uh, for Jason Beret, Bob Wickman, and Steve Woodard. So Ber- okay. Beret and Wickman were marginally okay players for a few years. Wickman was a decent reliever for Cleveland. I, I think he actually held the Cleveland saves record for a while until Cody Allen broke it. That's a bad, that's a bad trade for Cleveland because Richie Sexton was like, can we get into Richie Sexton or do you still have more to say about the pitching? Cause I, I have a, uh, I have a thing about no, Richie Sexton. My, my, my whole point was that Cleveland never would end up getting the pitching they needed uh, after 95, 99 was kind of the, the peak of this era they would miss the playoffs by, like, a game in 2000, get back in 2001 with kind of the last gasp of that core, uh, which, as I mentioned last time, that was kind of the first Cleveland team I really remember. Yeah. Um, and Dave Berber, and, Dave Berber was kind of their best pitcher that year, which is fucked. Him yeah, and Col- in, him and in 2000 and 2001 in particular, they yeah. just they had no pitches. It was they, Col- they had Cologne, Berber, and Nagy. Cologne, Berber, and Nagy were yeah. passable. Cologne was, Cologne was good. Yeah. Burba and Nagy were passable to good, and then yeah. everyone else was fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. They did have rookie Stacey in 2001, so he, you know, eventually would become something good. I think he, he won a lot of games in 2001, but his ERA wasn't great, and the peripherals behind it also yeah. weren't that great. And he great. wasn't on this team either, in the 99 team. No, yeah. he was not. He was still a prospect at that point. But, uh, yeah, they just they never got the pitching they needed, and that core eventually got blown up. Uh, much to my childhood chagrin. Just an observation. I mean, I I watched a lot of Richie Sexton, so I kn- I knew this, but he's enormous. Like just yes. like watching him stroll up to the plate, it's like, oh yeah, that guy was fucking weird. Like he just like truly, truly one of the weirdest body types in baseball history. And and let me just illustrate that for you. And you may have already looked at the notes. I think you did, so you've probably seen yes. this. Yep. So I can't ask you it as a trivia question, but. In Major League Baseball history, players that are six feet seven inches or taller and two hundred ten pounds or lighter, there are two of them listed, and I don't know how accurate it is with the second one. <laughs> Richie Sexton is one; he's at six seven two o five. The other one is Tony Clark, who I think is listed at six seven two ten. But I think if we're really being honest with each other, that's an early career weight. For Tony yeah, Clark. Tony Clark was bigger than that. Yeah, he he got bigger as as he they, filled. They out. called him Tony the Tiger for a reason. Yeah, he filled out. Uh, he was he was yeah. Richie Sexton like in his first year, I think, and then he filled out mm-hmm. after that. Whereas Sexton never filled out. That dude was always weird, just weird slender yeah, man was... strolling up to the plate and knocking home. Yeah, runs. no, he was he was like if you took Aaron Judge but removed like sixty pounds of muscle. Yeah, and he has the literally. longest legs I've ever freaking scene in my life yeah like the dude just like the first at bat they do like a side profile of him strolling up next to the catcher who's also standing it's mm-hmm. like oh my god that's a very large and skinny man yeah and a good player like kind of underrated because again it was sort of before everyone really cared about or were just starting to care about on base percentage richie sexton was actually mm-hmm. like a really good hitter for a long time yeah career 120 ops plus a uh, career high 140 OPS plus in 2003. Uh, he had, let's see here, two seasons where he hit 45 home runs and then another one, two, three, four where he hit 30 or more. So yeah, good power hitter. Did not age well, which well, makes sense for someone of that body type. And he got hurt a lot, um, even younger. Yes, he did. Yeah, That was kind of the knock against him was that he was mm-hmm. hurt all the time. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a good player though. And like, again, part mm-hmm. of that sort of cleveland uh player development system that actually still continued to churn out very good players uh after yep. they were good so yeah it's, it's richie sex and, and uh, i was i was really hoping he was gonna hit a home run in this game because it's just 
It's one of the weirdest things to look at. A guy with yeah, that, when you that watch many him arms hit a home and legs, run, like swing and connect. Because yeah. he didn't do that maybe often because he was so gigantic. But again, for a yeah. guy that size, not just that height, but that weight, like, again, it's unprecedented for a guy like that to even play in the majors, let alone be good, right? So, like, mm-hmm. it's just, just one of the weirdest, weirdest dudes one of the weirdest players and really i mean you got a guy that size with he wasn't exactly fast or anything like it's first yeah. it's a first base dh profile there's no you're not mm. playing him anywhere else in the field unless you're o'neill cruz now with the pirates who's somehow a shortstop and that i think he's also like similarly like i think he's i think he's like listed at 225 or something so he's, he's a yeah he's heavier. like wiry yeah he's a, he's got a weird frame six seven shortstop man i never thought i lived to see that the is day. it's bizarre it's weird I... watching him field It'd be like if it's like Richie Sexton trying to field that shortstop. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Like why? No, no. Um, so, do we want to talk at all about? So, so, there's some problematic figures on this Cleveland team. Yeah, we'll we'll bring this up real quick because I I did want to mention. <clears throat> we alluded you know, to it last time that we were talking about Roberto yeah, Alomar and, the, and, and I, the crushing of my childhood. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to get into uh, how loaded the lineup was by specifically looking at you know like war and rbis and oh, home that. runs and do all that, that we'll stuff. get to this stuff in a second then you do that first or or do you or do you want to get the yucky stuff out of the way first and then go into the baseball i, I don't care however you want to all right run let's it down. just do the yucky shit we brought it up so okay. um i we don't need to get into too many details because like you can all google and you probably all know um like i think most people who are going to be listening to this are pretty aware of of baseball and so but it just I wanted to talk less about what they did in like in a reporting kind of way, just acknowledging they're both pieces of shit. I mean, I'll just read you the headlines from Sports Illustrated for each. That's all we need to do. So mm-hmm. for our boy Roberto Alomar, when this came out, this truly because I this was in not that long ago, twenty twenty one. I want to say what like the article here is from twenty twenty one. I feel like it might have been earlier than that, but whatever. I feel like it was earlier, but. It, yeah, no, this is the, right, this is the, this, this is from 2021. Uh yeah, this is uh the second one actually. So yeah, the first one happened earlier. Uh Blue Jays investigating new sexual misconduct allegation against Roberto Alomar toward a teenager. Uh that's and that's the second um woman to come forward uh, with sexual misconduct allegations, both of them teenagers when Roberto Alomar was working for the Blue Jays um in their front office in the last 5 6 years, I think. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I don't really want to read this incident is from 2014. So again, well after he retired, this is when he was working as a as a sort of ambassador for the Blue Jays, which he did for a number of years uh, after he retired. Yeah, and that one, that one crushed my childhood. We'll talk about that in a second. The other one, Omar Vizquel, is far more disturb, like far more disturbing. It's hard to like put this on yeah. a scale, but you know what I mean. Uh, I think Roberto Alomar is a sort of like standard shitty dude with power doing awful shit. Um, Omar Vizquel's crosses into another level of, of disgusting that I think yeah, is like, I, I won't, I won't go into the specific details of it, but I remember the, the story was he had, um, or I shouldn't say the story cause it was, it was a thing that happened. It was reported. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had, um, there was an allegation from, I think, wasn't it a former bat boy for the tigers who uh, had, n- no, had- it was, so I have it here. Um, okay, yeah. Lawsuit accuses Omar Vizquel of sexually harassing a former Birmingham Barons bat boy. He was the manager, okay. actually, of the Birmingham Barons at the time, the AA affiliate yes. of the White Sox. And uh, this was uh, in 2021. Or at least the story came out in 2021. A, uh, an autistic uh, 25 year old bat boy 
yeah, just just disgust, just disgusting, like, like, uh, humiliating, exposing himself, sexually aggressive behavior, some really fucked up dark shit. Like that's like again, this is not to make Roberto Alomar look good. This is just to show you that like. Holy, Both things are holy bad. Shit, yeah. Omar Vizquel, like yeah, like a whole nother level of disgusting behavior. I want to because I feel like these are two interesting players for you and I because Roberto Alomar <laughs> is the reason I'm a fan in a lot of ways, and I feel like Omar Vizquel is probably up there for you in terms of like guys that you really appreciated as a player when you were a kid because he was a big part of those Cleveland teams. Maybe by the time you were actually more watching, he was gone. I'm not sure, but. He was he was very much a part of like he was he was never my favorite player but I always liked him I enjoyed watching him I and that double play duo specifically of he, Alomar Vizquel was Alomar and Vizquel is such a yeah especially th- this specific year in '99 because it was the one year Vizquel really hit um, for all the reputation people was like oh yeah he went to Cleveland and learned how to hit he really never learned how to hit. He only had, he had a couple seasons where he was around league average or above league average, but that was that was pretty much it. His he just w- he just was less bad from when he had been in Seattle. Yeah, he was he was in Drelton Simmons, maybe yeah, not quite as good. Omar, uh, no, Oz, I would Ozzie's, I would say Simmons was a better hitter. Yeah. Simmons had more power potential. Oz, Ozzie uh, Smith, yeah. Smith, but not quite as good defensively or as a yeah. hitter, really. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, because th- this was this was Omar's career year uh, in 1999. He was always fun to watch. I have, um, and I still have it. It's kind of shuffled to the back of a shelf. I may try and get rid of it at some point. But I actually have an Omar Vizquel bobblehead that has a button you can press on it, and like radio calls of him making plays will like play through the bobblehead. And it was it was a very cool thing I had as a kid, and I liked having it. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was he was also my grandma's favorite player mm-hmm. for much of her life, and I'm very very glad that she had died after this allegation came out because it absolutely would have broken. Also, her heart very glad he it. didn't get into the Hall of Fame before this came out. With Roberto Alomar, yes. Roberto Alomar got into the Hall of Fame before his stuff came out, and I've often wondered because yeah. the Blue Jays when when this came out immediately didn't fired they remove him. him from their yeah they fired him from his job and they removed him from the level of excellence and unretired his number, which is. Wow. Which is pretty That's good. A pretty big deal. And they did it immediately. They didn't, well, they and didn't the Jays, wait to like investigate the further. The Jays seem to have a pretty good record with like harassment and domestic violence and between yeah. that and <laughs> the way they handled the Osuna situation sure. maybe or maybe maybe I'm misremembering some of that. Yeah, no, the Osuna thing they traded him before he had a chance to play another game. It was also a trade that made sense for the team. It was actually quite good for the sure. team. And yeah. they, were, they, they, he's exactly the kind of guy that they might have looked at trading anyway. It's hard to give them the benefit sure. of the doubt on that one, but they did at least That's do fair. it. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> it's not like they just released him. They just, they did still make out pretty well in that right. trade. And I'm not sure if they hadn't got that trade. That's the big question. If they hadn't got that trade with the Astros, who knows, right? And then there's right. like some things around Edwin Canacion, which it, which you can. Google, it's, oh, those, were, those were like kind of less substantiated and like not to not to play that fucking game, but uh, you know mm-hmm. they were less substantiated. They just were uh, there. There wasn't as much uh, there, and nothing that I'm aware of ever really came of it. I think there was just like a domestic battery, not domestic battery, but some sort of uh, battery charge. But sure. anyway, so what I wanted to talk about just a little bit, and again, we're we talk a lot. We're already at an hour, um, but <laughs> but uh, like, how does this affect your fandom? Maybe this is a big, too big of a question. Maybe we can we can return to this 
when Roberto Alomar is inevitably in another game or something, or Omar Vizquel is, how does this affect your memories of your fandom? Because for me, it's been hard with Alomar because he is such a core memory guy with my baseball fandom. Right. I know he's a piece of shit, but I can't help but like still feel the twinge of excitement when I see his arms stretched up in the air hitting a home run off of off of Dennis Eckersley. That that's still one of my first baseball memories that matters to me, right? And like like I just I, I obviously I would never condone what Roberto Alomar does. He should not be in the Hall sure. of Fame. He should not have his number retired. He should not be really honored in any way for being such a shitty human, but like he's still the memories are still there and it, it fucking sucks it actually like hurt when he when this stuff came out about yeah because it was like god damn it him really of all the people but yeah never never meet your heroes so i'm gonna go off on a bit of a tangent but it has a point and it's related to this i kind of look at it the same way but to a lesser extent because again this part of it for me this isn't as much of a is as much at the core of my baseball fandom for me like obviously he's a part of it, but he's it, it's not it's not quite the same. Now if if something were to come out about like Jim Tomey, God forbid, especially with his whole persona of being this lovable, affable guy who genuinely seems like a good dude, if something were to come out about him, I would struggle a lot with that. Like that that would be tough. But in any kind of instance like that, I would look at it the same way that I look at media that I enjoy that comes from problematic people or creators, if that makes sense. Like, um, if you'll allow me to go on a weeb tangent for a minute, one of my favorite mangas ever written is Roroni Kenshin, uh, which is about a wandering samurai who uh, is trying to, like, find himself post-Meiji-era uh, Japan. Um, and it's a very well-written story. It was adapted into an anime... Uh, it was on Konami for years here in the States. Um, but the guy who created uh, the original manga was uh, actually convicted in Japan uh, for being in possession of child porn. And because of Japan's weird uh, relationship with that and how they view that crime and their weird like lolly culture that they have, he basically just got a slap on the wrist and was allowed to just continue being a part of society after serving some menial sentence. Um, so it's very hard to try and like appreciate, you know, tension related, like, like media and like spend money on it. Cause he can still get royalties from that. Like I know at one point I was actually trying to um, collect the remainder of that series of manga and figure out, how I could get all of them used from secondary sources, so that way he's not getting money, basically. Um, but ultimately, I would kind of look at, you know, athletes doing shitty things off the field uh, in the same way, and that, I, to an extent, you try and separate that from, you know, their art, quote-unquote. You know, you can still appreciate Barry Bonds being one of the best baseball players we've ever seen, while also acknowledging the fact that he's a piece of shit who beat the hell out of his wife for most of his career and really, frankly, got away with it just because of the era Clemens it happened too. in. I yeah, mean, a, we could go. Rod we could go on and on and on about. Oh athletes. yeah, I mean these are yeah. athletes. These are self-selected assholes in a lot of ways. It's, yes, having hung around with athletes a lot of my life and been an athlete myself and been in those locker rooms, I, yeah, they're 
we shouldn't be shocked yep. when they turn out to be mm-hmm. shitty people because while right. not all of them are it definitely is uh more uh, prevalent than i would say in normal everyday society yes agreed yeah yeah and for me i guess it, yeah it's 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 just like i have i have an easier time with the art versus artist thing and and the reason for that well i guess i shouldn't say that because like there's certain kinds of artist quote unquote that i have a harder time with so like sure louis ck who I was a huge fan yeah. of, Kevin yeah. Space, and Kevin Spacey, who was a huge fan yeah. of. I can't watch their mm-hmm. shit anymore because now I just see the shitty person. I don't see right. the art. I see the shitty person making. Well, the and art. I think in those specific instances, because the art involves them actually being present right. in it, whereas which, whereas like a musician who maybe I cannot see their face when they're when, right, or if you you're know, reading something, or you're reading or watching something, something, yeah, yeah, something, somebody they're wrote not something that they're not, yeah, in. exactly, yeah, that like not, and I'm not saying that it's easy for me there either, but it's easier, and I maybe have, a, I can maybe do the separation thing a little more effectively, right, exactly. But sports operates in this weird thing because, like, ultimately Roberto Alomar is not who I was cheering for. You know, I was cheering right, for the pajamas exactly. he was wearing, and it still to this day is the case. I mean, I imagine this is how a lot of Yankees fans have felt over the last few years watching Aroldis Chapman close games for them, you know, or, or any number of other shitty athletes that play for teams that you have to now, like. I will say I've, for the time being, completely given up on my Browns fandom because of the whole Deshaun Watson right. thing, just because, like, that was a conscious decision that the team made. It yeah. wasn't like... You know, they drafted him and then found out later that he was a piece of shit. Yeah, when like, the when the Rangers they knew... when the Rangers signed Trevor Bauer in the next few yeah. few weeks, because we all know yeah, that exactly. shit's coming. Uh, right. I'm, you know, or the Rays picking on the Rangers. One but, of those two. Yeah. Yeah. Some soulless bullshit team that doesn't care who plays for them, mm-hmm. whose fan base is no offense to the good people of of Arlington or uh, or Saint Petersburg, Tampa, but uh, you have a higher proportionate fan base that would be okay with that kind of thing. I'm just I don't think I'm going out on a limb saying that. And that's not to, maybe I shouldn't say that, I don't know, but uh, I feel like the Rangers fans and Rays fans would be a little more okay with it, the four Rays fans that actually yeah. watch the fucking team. For me, it's just, it's hard, because like, yeah. you can't talk about the Blue Jays' most successful period without talking about Roberto Alomar. You just can't. Right, and you and you can't talk about the 90s run of Cleveland without talking about Omar Vizquel. It might be it's, easier. It's the same way. <laughs> like, I don't think Vizquel was as important to those teams as Alomar was to the Blue Jays, but... Like, I... Yes, but he was a huge fan favorite, Oh, yeah. Though. yeah, oh, yeah, like, for sure. Like, people, people here fucking love I mean, Blue Jays Omar fans Vizquel. loved Omar Vizquel, and they only saw him when he was, like, a 42-year-old useless bench player. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and they still loved him. He was, he's, he had that, that, that got, that goodwill almost single-handedly got him into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know? yep. No, he was trending in the right direction. And for the record, regardless of what he did off the field, I don't think he should have been in no, the Hall of Fame in the first Hall of place. Famer. That was entirely because people no. liked him. That's all that was. Yeah. Uh, and then he went and fucked that up, so <laughs> good yeah. work, idiot. But uh, anyway. But Roberto Alomar um, actually had to overcome that a little bit because, like, he was yeah. he was not liked as a player. And, like, you know, with the spitting in the face of John Hirschbeck and... Which stuff is? Yeah, stuff he had that, a bit of an attitude. He, oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Roberto Alomar had a bit of an attitude. He's a bit of a dick, um, mm-hmm. and, but he's also a phenomenal player. And it's just it's hard for me. Tremendous. It's hard. Like I don't. I already wasn't watching him as much when he got to Baltimore and Cleveland and New York and wherever else because like mm-hmm. by then he wasn't a Blue Jay anymore and like I was no right. longer actively rooting for him. But like I, I mean, mm-hmm. still liked him, but I wasn't rooting for him actively. And 
It's just it's hard. Like, it's, it's hard like with those with... early '90s teams, man, because that's he's just he's the best player right. on those teams. Like he is the best yeah. player on those teams. Anyway, uh, that aside, do you want to get into some more uh, fun things? Yeah, we should we should we should do that, and then we should wrap up. So there's still yes. more on here. We, get, we can just go along. Fuck it. Who cares? Yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll go along for this one. So. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Cleveland lineup as a whole, just because it was such a crazy good offense that year. They basically had uh, one, two, three. Like, if we go by their nine quote-unquote regulars that year, it approximated into Enar Diaz, Jim Tomey, Robbie Alomar, Omar Vizquel, Travis Ryman, David Justice, Kenny Lofton, Manny Ramirez, Richie Sexton. Basically everyone who's in the lineup in this game. Um, Every one of those guys played in at least 120 games outside of Diaz, who played in 119, and then Fryman, who was hurt half the year, only played in 85. Um, so they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven out of the nine had OPS pluses over 100. Uh, they had three that were over 140 in Tomei, Alomar, and uh, Ramirez. Um, they had one, two, three, four, five guys with an on base over 400, which is insane to even think about nowadays. Uh, Manny, Lofton, Justice, Were there Tomei, even five and Alomar. Guys in baseball last year that had over 400 yeah. base percentages. Well, and like... then Vizquel had an on base of 397. Yeah. That was that and year where top... he just went bananas for no reason. Yeah. So then to top that off, they had one two, three guys who walked more than they struck out in Justice, Vizquel, and Alomar. And then as far as just like walks in general, Tomei drew 127, which led baseball. Alomar had 99. Uh, Vizquel had only 65, but only struck out 50 times. That's a crazy stat line. Justice drew 94, struck out 90. Lofton drew 79, struck out 84. Uh, Manny drew 96, struck out 131. But yeah, just a crazy crazy good all-around lineup they had four guys driving over 100 runs uh there's like less than 10 teams that have done that all time uh they hit 209 home runs as a team which was six best in the league it's actually light on the home run side everyone was getting on base everyone was getting hit manny would have by far and away been the best player on the team that year or actually no i take that back he and alomar Tied in war, maybe? Uh, or no, were close? No, uh, Ramirez led all American League position players, and at least Fangraphs war at 7.5. Okay. Yeah, he was... I'm looking at B-Ref. It had him at 7.3, Alomar been... Yeah, 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 B-Ref does different things there, too. But yeah. Right. Um, yeah, arguably he should have been the MVP, or because like, uh, that was the year Yvonne Rodriguez won it, I think. Which, who, yeah, again, Pudge no shade, it. he was a catcher who put up like a seven-war season. Yeah. So, yeah, but... Maybe Manny should have won that, probably. Cleveland's had a lot of guys come close who, quote-unquote, should have won MVPs. Manny that year, uh, Albert Bell, like, in really 93, 94, 95, and 96. Yeah, 95, he had that 50-50 year in a season. 95 in particular, yeah. Nuts. 95, he probably should have won it. Um, Tomei had a couple years where he maybe had an argument i i i think 2002 he had a pretty strong argument but it's also hard to top peak a rod so that one maybe not as much but then like hafner had a couple monster years and it's crazy too because like obviously roberto alomar and jim tomey are both hall of famers but 
we we can all I, I'm sure you and I will at least agree Kenny Lofton should be a Hall of Famer. Yes, Man, Kenny should be in the Hall of Fame. Manny I Ramirez, think Manny should Manny be Ramirez, in the Hall of Fame. Like I mean, you can debate. I don't really care what he did. I mean, he he actually got caught doing steroids multiple times. So like that one, I can kind of see. I guess why you wouldn't want him in the Hall of Fame, but it, on the flip side of but that, but the numbers like, are there. Steroids, yeah, steroids don't make a guy have a career 300, 400, 500 splash. No, yeah, like the, that wasn't steroids. It's like him and you know Miguel Cabrera and a few others in the shortlist yeah. for best right-handed hitter of all time. So like, you know, he should probably be in there. Um, I would yeah. vote for him if I had a vote. So like, that's five. Absolutely, There's, Hall of Fame talent yeah. level guys in that lineup. Yes, and then mm-hmm. David Justice, who if he didn't get hurt through his prime with the uh, with the Braves, and like yeah. really struggle with that for a few years, he might be at least close to uh, Hall of Fame discussions. David Justice is a underrated guy oh, yeah. from this era. He had a couple of monster his because actually in '97 when they went to the World Series, he was probably the second best. Okay, actually, no, his war might have been dinged by his defense, but from a hitting standpoint, he was the best hitter on that team in 97 when they went to the World Series. WRC+. Yeah, David Justice was uh, real good, and he was the sixth hitter in this lineup. Like, even a 33-year-old David Justice as a sixth hitter. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. Travis Fryman and Richie Sexton both, like, again... if they're if they're in the middle of your order, yeah, okay, you might be you might be kind of wanting a little more. But there were the seven and eight mm-hmm. hitters in this lineup. That's fucking yeah, crazy. Yeah, no, it, the lineup was stupid loaded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can we talk about the White Sox because we are getting a little long yes. on time here? Yeah. So let's let's move on. We don't need to spend as much time with them because frankly they're more boring. Um, and yes. they got absolutely tuned in this game. They finished the season at uh, 75, 86, and one. The rare baseball tie. Uh, I'd like to see what that was about, but. They, they had a Pythag of 72 wins, so weren't good. And that was they were second in the Central that year, so really Cleveland had no competition. They they got off to that 29-10 and 10 start, and they there was no there was no real reason for them to even try yeah. from that point on. They, and I don't, they were winning the division. <laughs> and I don't, I don't care for this narrative that the Central has, like, only recently become bad. The Central's always oh, been bad. Yeah. People just pay more attention to it now. There was a time there in the, I want to say, I don't exactly remember when it was, I want to say late aughts, where you had Cleveland, Minnesota, and Detroit kind of all good at the same time. Yes. And the White yeah. And the White Sox weren't bad either. So there was, there was a time, mm-hmm. but even then, they... They were still compared to the American. You still had the Royals, who were an abortion. Exactly, and none of those teams. Those teams were all competitive. None of them were like amazing either. So right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, we talked about James Baldwin. I just, I just wanted to highlight like a couple. They had only, uh, only the one Hall of Famer in the lineup, and that was Frank Thomas, who uh, Mm -hmm. is is a fun and great player. And I, and I am sure we will encounter him again in this series. Yeah. Um, he had his 500th home run as a Blue Jay, just saying. But uh, I wanted to say just a couple fun facts about him. So during his career between 1990 and 2008, he was second in war among first basemen behind only Jeff Bagwell. And he's second in franchise history in uh, White Sox franchise history and war behind Luke Appling. Um, so he's fun. And uh, I just had two other quick things about two different players. Feel like mm-hmm. you'll indulge me. Sure. Ray Durham was low-key one of my favorite non-Blue Jays players of that era. I don't know why. Don't know why. Probably, again, because I was a second baseman. I already played a lot of second base and shortstop. He and had a fairly decent career, honestly, good. for his profile. Thing. So, yeah. so this was a trivia question I was going to ask you, but now I know you've looked at the notes. I'm going to hide these from you next time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> this is another sort of like like unofficial trivia question I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. But 
Uh, he was sort of like, he wasn't a good defender at second. Uh, probably, I think he did play the outfield at times. Uh, was sort of a fast guy who maybe would have been mm-hmm. better served as a center fielder than a second baseman. But uh, not a very good second baseman defensively, but just a really good hitter for a long time. During his career between 95 and 08, so that's the entire duration of his career, 95 and 08, uh, he was seventh among all second basemen in F war. Um, have you seen the notes? Have you're looking at them? Have you seen them? Can I, uh, can I still ask I, you this question? Go ahead and ask. I, I stopped short of the trivia part because I didn't want to spoil. Oh, this anything. wasn't in the trivia part. It was in the White Sox part. But um, so so during that career, during his career, ninety five to 08, mm-hmm. seventh among second basemen in, in WAR. How many of the people, the six, can you name that are ahead of him during that time? From what was the era again? 1995 to 2008. 95 through 08. I'm going to guess Alomar's somewhere on there. He is. He's third. Uh, Biggio? Second. Uh, Jeff Kent? He was number one. Okay. Uh, you said he was seventh, so there's three uh, more. Three more? Yeah. Okay. Let's see here. Kent, Biggio, Alomar. Let's see here. Second baseman. Uh, <laughs> was Knobloch on there, maybe? No, he was like ninth or 10th no. or something. He was, he okay, was up there, yeah. but he wasn't wasn't that high. Yeah, because yeah, I don't want to say... I don't want to say Bayerga, because he would have been well past his no, prime yeah, at that point. No, yeah, it wasn't But a guy um, who always occupies the same space as Bayerga for me, and that could be racist. I'm going to be out there and admit that right away. Um, you want me to just want me to give him to you so we can we can move on? Yeah, to... I'm probably not going to get him. Uh, yeah. Chase Utley, Alfonso Soriano, and Edgardo Alfonso. Alfonso is the one that always occupies the same brain space for me as Bayerga. And again, it's probably just because they both have latin names and we're se- and we're sort of like big bodied second baseman who hit for power i don't know probably i'm surprised that utley ranked that high coming in as because i yeah, thought yeah, about because he was man, but i'm bonkers. like no because because he, he wouldn't have played in the late 90s but no, no but he was so he was good so good <laughs> he was just so good in those last three four years before that so the other thing about ray durham if you just isolate ray durham by his prime from 1998 mm-hmm. to 2006 the sort of best stretch that he had he was second among second basemen in war, only behind Kent. And that, like, to wow. me, that, that, between 98 and 06, that's like a lot of years. Um, mm-hmm. So Ray Durham, uh, underrated player. You probably didn't think about him very much. But uh, he was briefly in, in Moneyball, for those of you that read that, because he got traded to Oakland in 2002. And it was a big thing, you know, for Oakland, because they don't normally get players quite as talented as Ray Durham at that, uh, you know, time of the year. Paul Canerico, <laughs> um, so he was drafted... 13th overall by the Dodgers and this he had a weird early career he was traded he was a really highly ranked prospect drafted 13th overall was was sort of like a yeah wasn't he a catching prospect with the Dodgers originally he was he was a catching prospect with the Dodgers but there was no chance he was ever catching it was he oh, was God, like yeah. first baseman no. uh all the way through but he did mm-hmm. get traded twice before he really took off because he's thought of as like a White Sox lifer and he played almost his entire career with the White Sox. It was very, very good for them for a long time. And uh, it was Dodgers then Reds. Yeah, he was right? he was traded from the Dodgers to the and to the Reds with Denny Reyes, the left handed reliever, in exchange for Jeff mm. Shaw, who went on to be the Dodgers closer for a few years. And then the other trade was in ninety eight November, like was was so there's July ninety eight he was traded to the Reds and then in November ninety eight in the offseason he was traded again. So the Reds just really didn't hang on to him to the White Sox for Mike Cameron. And that is interesting because oh. Mike Cameron was later a centerpiece of the Ken Griffey Jr. deal to the Mariners. So yes. 
a uh, little, you know, Paul Canerco to Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, thing there. I just, I find it interesting that a guy who, I mean, Kidderker's a very good player and a very good prospect for him to get traded twice before he really had a chance to be an everyday player is like pretty rare. It doesn't happen very well, and often. That, that red era is so bizarre because they, like, they were never like truly terrible or bad, but they just didn't do anything of note for about 20 years, basically, from yeah. a- after they won the, ther- the World Series up until like the turn of the decade in the 2000s. Yeah, and the Votto, they just, Votto era. Yeah, the Votto era. Yeah, they and I don't know if it was just that they couldn't develop or if they weren't spending money or if it was both. I'm pretty sure it was both. <laughs> but yeah, they just really weird team, really weird franchise at that time. I'm just going to rapid fire a couple things. So we talked a lot last time about how two hitters in this era were pretty bad. This was the case where you could argue, I mean, Vizquel had a really good year. He probably still shouldn't have been the number two hitter uh, on a lineup no. that stacked. But at least no. he was hitting. Um, yes. But Mike Caruso on the White Sox, ooh, finished the season with yeah. a 47 OPS plus. That dude was yeah, that's second bad. for the White Sox. When you had Frank oh, fucking Thomas hitting right behind him, like, come on. Yeah, it's um, dumb. The score, dumb, dumb, dumb. score bug was in this game, not in the 94 game. And I got to tell you, quality of life watching baseball having the score bug just a big big innovation for sports i'm just gonna say that because yes 94 the 94 game was frustrating to watch because yeah you you never knew when the fucking what the count was yeah i've no idea i've struggled trying to watch some of these older games pre-score bug it's tough the one thing i will say that uh and who knows if they'll get rid of this probably not but i like having the score bug and i also like not having the the like uh strike zone box yeah the, the strike zone overlay i kind of like the strike zone overlay i'm not gonna lie to you. i i i like <laughs> it and don't like it like it's it, i don't know man the and we'll see where things go with the auto strike zone that they're probably going to end up implementing here within a couple years but yeah it's yeah i i have mixed feelings about it hawk harrelson hilarious i love it like so they got i love how after after like the sixth inning he just stopped, he stopped talking. talking like it wasn't like, <laughs> he just stopped like sometimes, he was sometimes so done sometimes he will like throw a tantrum on air and he's like he he's like doing the play-by-play but he is not into it he's like low energy and hawk's like famous for his high energy shit right so like he mm-hmm. just get low and ground ball. You gotta be ground bleeping ball. me. Ground ball is short. Yeah, okay, ground good, whatever. <laughs> but this game, he just let he just let Patrick take the play by play. He's like, I'm not doing yeah. it anymore. Fuck it. And he said, yeah. I think he like I was gonna count, and then I kind of got bored. Uh, but I think he said like two sentences between the sixth inning and the end of the game. Like, yeah, literally, no, he, was just, just dumb. he was just like, I'm not doing it. And like, poor Tom Patrick had to just like <laughs> air for him. So yeah, good. That no, was great. Um, uh, I know. Um, quick, quick Hawk Harrelson thing, and I'll. And this is only going to be thirty seconds or more. Uh, my favorite Hawk Harrelson call of all time. Go look up the White Sox broadcast call of Jason Giambi's walk off home run. Oh, uh, I've seen in this in twenty thirteen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where and this like... game is over, and he just <laughs> doesn't say a word for like two minutes. Like two whole minutes. Yeah. It's so good. If he was holding he was his mic. So he wasn't holding his mic. I'm sure he had like a stand. But if yeah. he had it been, you would have heard it audibly hit the floor as he walked yeah. out of the fucking room. He was so <laughs> mad. Like Hawk, Hawk Harrelson walk off lost calls when he was still broadcasting gave me life. I kind of love it. It was so funny. Like I love that. So I love that the White Sox got tuned in this game. Like I love that we got to hear that Hawk Harrelson because it is yes. funny to me. It is like act and like I was like, oh, he's it's not. It's hysterical. At one point, I caught myself. I was like, oh, he's not really like 
throwing a tantrum this time, and then I realized he's not talking. Like literally, Patrick is just doing everything. Yeah. He's like, he was just done. Yeah, and he Patrick just was not a play-by-play guy. He was the color guy. So no. like him doing play-by-play at all is like, I'm sure he just turned to him and was like, I'm done, Tom. I'm just going to sit here silently. And Tom's like, oh, fuck, okay. Uh, yep. <laughs> I guess I have to do it. And I'm sure that like, it kind of does sound like Hawk's actually a good dude and like people really like working with him. So like, I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to shit on the guy for being a bad person or anything i'm sure that tom patrick is more than happy to do it but it just like it's just funny i thought i find it hilarious it's very funny um so two so my roommate evelyn uh she is not a baseball fan importantly Mm -hmm. but i do tell her about funny stuff in baseball so like i told her about george brett shit in his pants uh you know (laughs) things like that like she she if there's a funny baseball story i will tell her she will enjoy it but otherwise her relationship to baseball is she likes baseball naps uh, which I also love baseball naps. You throw a baseball game on. It's Saturday. It's July. It's the middle of the afternoon. It's hot outside. And you just take a little, mm-hmm. little hour-long nap in the middle innings. You baseball know? siesta. Yeah. So um, she had some observations. This might be a recurring theme. Either her or, or my partner, Tessa, who's also not a baseball fan. Because I, like, mm-hmm. I like when they're watching just sort of the observations they make about what they're seeing. Hers both related to Tom Patrick because she was around for the very beginning of the game. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is direct. Tom Patrick and his wife have seen you from across the bar and they would like to buy you a drink. And Tom Patrick <laughs> looks like he has hidden a watch up his ass. Uh, so that's, uh, those are, the two, those are Eb's observations. <laughs> make it. That's a Pulp Fiction reference for those of you not as inclined to that second one. But yeah, so that's the, that's the skinny from Ev. Sorry. Good I, observations. I feel, I feel like I went, I kind of took over there at the end uh, just to get through stuff, but is there anything else you wanted to say no, to wrap good. it up? Not a whole lot. Uh, I I already mentioned Cleveland's pitching and their efforts to not find pitching. Uh, somewhat related to that, this was by far the best start Dwight Gooden had that whole year. It was mm-hmm. if Yankee Dwight Gooden was post peak Dwight Gooden, this was like post 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 peak Dwight Gooden. <laughs> and he was, he was only absolutely horrible when he was in Cleveland. No, he was not that old. He was just he was just done. Like his his body was just trashed between cocaine and not taking care of himself and Lord knows what else he was doing. Yeah, the addiction issues, the injuries. Yeah. yeah. And just honestly, the overuse. Let's not talk about it. It's just overused by the Didn't he have a season in the minors where he struck out over 300 batters? Yeah, oh, like that. He was bonkers. We should find a good experience. We do need to find a good experience. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, 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 by the time I was watching baseball, he was already kind of done in his late 20s. So, yeah. um, like, I don't really even have that much memory of, of Doc Gooden being good. He hung around for a long time, but he was... We need to find, like, a Mets fan in their 60s who can tell us <laughs> yeah. about how good he was in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I think that's got to be it for us. We're, this, we said we're going to keep these to an hour, and I swear to God, Scott, we're going to. We're going to keep them to an hour <laughs> because editing these is a nightmare. Uh, so... But we'll, we'll indulge another long one. So next time we're going to watch uh, the final game that we're going to watch for a while with either Cleveland or Toronto in it. We don't want this to just become uh, us waxing poetic about being fans. But the next game will be a head-to-head matchup between our two favorite teams. Scott, do not spoil this one for me. Uh, I will not. 1988. Uh, what was the? Mm-hmm. Do you know the date? We can put the. We'll put the link in the show notes. But what's the date in 1988? June 7, 1988. June 7th, 1988. Okay, so a little earlier than... than uh, I I would say that we're probably not going to do as many games in the 80s because the quality of the video is just not yeah. there. 
but uh, yeah, we wanted to do this one Cleveland in Toronto from the mistake on the lake, whole Muni Stadium. So yeah, uh, yeah, uh, just 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 uh, yeah. I don't I don't I don't know what I was gonna say there. We'll probably just wrap this up. This has been <laughs> this has been Coax Baseball. Thanks for listening. We hope you all enjoy.